Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 through 54. And the word of God reads, Now, from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land, and to the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs also were open and many bodies of the saints who have fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw that the earth quaked and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this it was the Son of God. Today I want to tag this, tes- this uh, text, uh, a testimony from the foot of the cross. A testimony from the foot of the cross. You may be seated In the name of Jesus. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word, which is life. We thank you for your word, which is pure, which is holy, which is clean. We thank you for your word, which revives the heart, Father God. We thank you, Father, because we know that this is your word, your very words, Father God, your love letter to us. This is the most precious entity that any man could ever have, Father God, and we are thankful for it. And we just pray this morning, Father, that you would speak through it, that you will allow our minds and our hearts, Father God, to be captivated by it, that you will allow your Holy Spirit to do in us what only you can do, Father God. We pray that you will fill us up, Father God. And to our cup is overflowing. We thank you, Father God, for your radical love, for your radical submission, Father God, for your radical care, Father. And we are so appreciative, Lord, of the fact that you have granted us with the grace to be able to call you Father. Now speak, Father. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen. A testimony from the foot of the cross. As we look at this text, we see that in verse 54, that there is a centurion who was at the foot of the cross witnessing what happened on that wonderful day over 2,000 years ago. And we must know and see that this text, of course, is, 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 is talking about uh, the, resu- the, the I'm sorry, crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It is talking about how our Savior died for us, how he was the perfect substitute for us and how he stepped in between us and God's wrath. And in the midst of reading the story, I could only uh, be drawn into uh, the, the testimony of this man, this centurion, this, this person who w- witnessed what was happening. A centurion uh, was a commander of 100 men in the Roman army. 
And this office was a prestigious and a, a very high office within it was it was really prestigious and it was really important because for a an average soldier this was pretty much the, the highest that they would go this is what they looked forward to becoming they knew that if they worked hard if they put in and had enough experience and if they became knowledgeable of their job as a soldier and worked it out well that one day they could be promoted to be a centurion and and most soldiers really wanted to be one because a centurion was a person that had prestige was a person that pretty much had power and a person that had pay. This soldier was over 100 other Roman soldiers. They did as he said. As he took uh, orders from Caesar, so they took orders from him. He not only overcapped and oversaw the work of these soldiers, but he also was in charge of overseeing capital punishments. Whenever a, crim a criminal was going to be crucified or was going to be publicly rebuked, he was the one that was overseeing it and making sure that everything fell in place and went and, and fell in line. And in this text that we just read, we see that, this, that it was a centurion that was on duty, that was overseeing the death of three men, two thieves, and our Savior. For this centurion, this day would have most undoubtedly been the most important day of his life. And the second most important day of his life was probably the very, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We read in this text that this centurion at the end of this event, he shouts aloud in front of Jesus' enemies, in front of Jesus' family, in front of the, the few disciples that was there, he shouts aloud, truly, this was the Son of God. He did what Peter was not willing to do. And the question that I want to ask this morning is, is how does a man go from earlier that morning beating Christ and having his soldiers to beat and mock Christ to later on that night screaming in front of everyone that this was the Son of God. As we look at his testimony, we uh, must not forget that a crucifixion was something that he would have been accustomed to overseeing. As a centurion and as a, a leader, this was not the first crucifixion that he had seen. But yet, I, I truly believe that experiencing uh, the cruci uh, crucifixion was not something that someone could become accustomed to. It was not something that someone could get used to because of the horrible means by which a person died. In the book Evangelical Ethics, John Jefferson Davis, in his chapter about abortion, talked about the agony and guilt that most abortion doctors feel in carrying out their duties. He talks about how even though that's his job and even though he believes that nothing is wrong with abortion, and we know that that's not true, he, he talks about how uh, many doctors that he interviewed, at the end of the day, how, how guilty they feel after performing abortions. And he gives testimony after testimony as he interviewed doctor after doctor and they all talked about how they just feel so filthy and dirty and how their conscience would constantly eat at them. And, and some of them was testifying about how they are now chain smokers because they are witnessing this type of death over and over and over again. 
And in the book, he talks about how many of them, at the end of the day, they rationalize what they are, are doing by saying that the mother's rights come before a child's rights, or a woman's right comes before a child's rights. When I think about this centurion, I think about how he must have had that same guilt experiencing crucifixions. And how even though he knew that some people probably deserved that type of death because of the grievous things that they did, how at the end of the day, the nature by which the crucifixion was was simply horrific. And no human being in their right mind could be okay with it. Death by crucifixion was horrible. In fact, I would argue that it is historically the worst way to die. I think that Christians and that people all over the world, that because of the the common sign of the cross, that we have forgotten exactly how how horrific a death of the cross was. I think that because we are so overexposed to symbols and signs of the cross that we forget how painful and how how agonizing it truly was. I was in the barber shop not too long ago, about a week and a half ago, and as I sat in the chair and was just observing and talking to my my barber and having a great conversation, I I couldn't help but to notice that even within the barber shop, even within some of the younger men, how, how many of them was repping the cross. I looked at one gentleman's arm and he had a a detailed tattoo on his arm of Christ on the cross. In fact, it was one of the most uh, detailed tattoos I ever seen. I was was really amazed by by the detail. And as I I looked at him and as I began to observe him, I just watched him and I was thinking to myself, I wonder what that cross means to to him. I wonder what that picture means to him. I I began to listen to his conversation. I began to hear him swear. And and within a matter of moments, it became clear to me that the marks that was on his body did not represent what Christ truly did for him. And after that, my eyes was drawn to another young man, a really young boy. He had to be about 11 or 12. And and around his neck, he had a a, a wooden piece, a wooden necklace, a necklace that was a cross. And and it was beautiful. And in fact, there was another barber who was cutting someone's hair. And he said, young man, let me see that cross. I've never seen anything like that made of wood. And he showed it off to him. And another gentleman asked me, showed it off to him. And I began to ponder and to think, do you know what that is? cross represents and do you know what it truly means just after that there was a gentleman that walked in the barbershop at first I had to take another look because at first I thought he was Rick Ross came in there with the sunglasses had the nice beard came in there with some fresh shoes some fresh jeans had a cool walk going and had a black and mild dangling from his mouth I, I thought he was a famous rap rock star or rap star for a second and upon second glance, I, I quickly noticed that he had a big gold, gold chain. I'm not sure if the diamonds in it was real, but, but the chain was, I mean, he had his bling, bling on. And I began to listen to him, and I began to watch the way he moved and watch the way he talked. And within a matter of seconds, it was clear to me that he was not a Christian, a true believer. The nature 
of the cross, this symbol. This symbol is a, a symbol of, 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 of one of the worst ways to die. Us wearing and rocking a cross today without thinking about it is like a, a person wearing a, a, a chain with an electric chair around their neck. Death by crucifixion was, was horrible. It was invented by the barbarians and, and popularized by the Greeks and the Romans. In fact, theologian John Stott in his classical book, The Cross of Christ, notes that crucifixion was probably the most cruel method of execution ever practiced. For it deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted. And the victim could suffer for days before dying. The average death of a person on the cross was a three-day process. As that person was stretched out on the cross, they would be fighting for days to breathe. And the Romans had, had really become specialized in, in crucifying someone in such a way to where the death was delayed for the longest and most maximum time. In fact, most people, when they're crucified on the cross, what they did is they not only put two beams together, but they also put a, a seat on the cross where the person would have to sit down. And, and as they sat down, their bodies slouched down. And every breath that they took was torture as they were fighting and gasping for air. And the only way that they could get air is if they used their feet to push them up, themselves up. To, to, in order that they could breathe. But after a moment and after a couple of minutes, the person's feet would begin to become sore and their calves would begin to become sores and their, their back would begin to ache and they would slouch down once again into the sea. This centurion witnessed this type of death over and over and over again. And I don't believe that no human being in their right mind could ever get used to seeing a person die that way. Cicero, one of Rome's greatest orators and philosophers, condemned death on a cross as the cruelest and dis most disgusting punishment. He went on to say that to bind a Roman citizen is a crime and to flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost uh, uh, the worst act of murder. To crucify him then is what? Cicero said, I, I, I can't even fathom the thought of what we can begin in, uh, to describe and, and describe in crucifixion. He said, it is the, the worst way to die. It defies explanation. For it was torturous. It was degrading. It was shameful to be driven outside of the camp of Jerusalem like Jesus was, to be forced to carry a, a heavy wood beam, to be stripped naked and beat and mocked and nailed to a tree, to be left to hang there for days as the vultures circled around you and, and picked at your flesh. I think the saying is true. And many people wear the cross. But very few people bear the cross. Perhaps God could only find the right words to describe death on the cross when he is giving the law to Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 21, 23. And, and what words does God use to describe a person who was hung on a tree? He says that the person who was hung under the tree 
is anathema. They are cursed. To die, a death of this magnitude was to die and to, to, to be cursed, to be anathematized. And I don't care how many crucifixions one experienced, the sight of a human being crying out like that had to do something to their psyche. I just imagine this centurion as he would be getting ready for the average day. I can just uh, imagine that his, his mind would go back to previous crucifixions. I can just imagine as he was, was, was put on his helmet and getting ready for service. I can just imagine him thinking about the blows that they would often give the person who was being crucified to the head. I can imagine as he was putting on his breastplate that he was reminded of how many times they would stick people who were on the cross in the side with the spear to make sure that they were finally dead. I can imagine that as he put on his shoes, he often thought about how him and his soldiers would mark up the walk up the Via Della Rosa or the road of sorrow on Golgotha and Calvary's hill. I can just imagine as he heard nails being driven into wood that he would often think about how they would nail perpetrators to this tree. I can imagine as he heard his children cry, if he had them, that he often thought about the cries that he would hear from other men as their flesh was being torn and as they were being left to be hung in the heat of the day. This man's soul had to be in agony. It had to be in war. But the second reason why I believe that this interior's conscience would have had to be in anguish, the morning of Christ's crucifixion, is because of the unique person that he was to watch die. This centurion had watched many people die. He had watched many people punished. And he probably was sure of most people's death and their deserving to die. But there had to be conflict in his soul as he knew and as he heard some, some conflicting stories about Jesus. He, he heard how the soldiers and how the Pharisees talked about how he was a blasphemer. And he heard about how they called him a glutton. And he heard about how he hung around the prostitutes and the sinners. But, but he also had to hear about how he gave life to the dead about how he healed the leopard, about how he was a man of compassion, about how he was a man of humility, about how his face shined even though he was not a, a man of beauty and though he, he stuck out among the crowd. He had to hear about this man who, who preached a sermon on a hill and, and many hearts burned. He had to hear about how he fed the multitudes with just two fish and, and five loaves. And, and if he hadn't heard of any of those stories, he had to hear about what he did in another centurion's life as one day a centurion ran up to Jesus and said master, master my servant is dead, my servant is sick at home he is paralyzed and Jesus said I will come to your house, I will heal your servant but this other centurion looked at Christ and said no you don't have to come, all you have to do is speak the word and he will be healed for I am just like you. I am a man of authority. I know that when I'm called to speak, when I speak, my servants act. And I know that you're the same way, that all you have to do is speak. And Jesus looked at the man and said, there is no greater faith in all of Israel. And as a centurion, I'm sure that he heard about this other centurion's testimony. 
as the Bible says, that in that very same hour, Jesus healed him. So this man, this man, soul is in conflict. But what won him over? What, what, uh, what made him get to the point of just shouting out loud in front of everybody, truly this is the son of God? I believe that in this text we can see a couple of things. And, and I believe that it's, it's, uh, it's, it's something that we really need to focus on. The first thing that I believe that won this man's heart to be able to shout these words is that he saw Jesus' purity on display even while Jesus was suffering. He saw Jesus' purity on display even when Jesus was suffering. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 27, as we look at this text, it, it tells us in, in verses 27 through 30 that Jesus was under mass persecution. The Bible tells us that there were men at the cross that were casting lots for his clothes. They were rolling dice to see who got to keep his robe. The Bible tells us that in verse 41 that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, that they were at the cross mocking him. Think about that. The religious leader, the very people who were teaching the law of Moses were the people who were at the foot of the cross mocking and taunting Jesus. How corrupt and how twisted is that? It's like a group of pastors coming together and going to the jailhouse and walking up and down the jail cell and cursing the people who are imprisoned. But what is amazing, what is astonishing, that even through all of this, that Jesus did not sin. And the centurion was watching him. He was watching him while he was on the cross and he had watched him before when Jesus was put before the battalion of 600 soldiers and Jesus was, was beat and mocked and stripped naked and, and a crown of thorns was on his head. He, he watched him as he took 39 lashes, save one from a cat of nine whip. And he watched Jesus suffer in this way. And while he was watching Jesus suffer in this way, he had to notice that Jesus did not curse. Jesus did not swear. Jesus did not throw another punch. But Jesus quietly and humbly took the persecution. What must that do to a person's soul to see someone who is innocent? Someone who is meek and mouth, someone who has love oozing from every part of their body. What must that do to someone to see a person of this magnitude being whipped and beat of the worst magnitude and still keep their purity? In fact, we know that while Jesus was on the cross, the words that came out of his mouth was not words of curses, but Words of blessing, words of prayer. He cried out in this text, Eli, Eli, lama sabathani, which was a quote of Psalms 22 as his soul was in anguish, as he was hanging from the, the tree at, at noonday, the hardest part of the day. He is crying out to the Lord. And as he's crying out to the Lord, he's crying out, what we read in Psalms 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many theologians fall different places with this. Some say that 
He wasn't thinking of Psalm 22. This was just a true expression of his soul. Some says that he was thinking of Psalm 22. I don't know what, whether he was or whether he wasn't, but I know he said, and I know that Jesus is the word, and I know that from him comes the word because that's who he is, and that's who he filled himself up with from, from at least the age of 12. So I know that what was coming from him was what God had predestined. And the question I want to ask you this morning as we reflect on the centurion's testimony of seeing Christ and seeing Christ's purity, the question I want to ask you is how are you suffering? How are we suffering? During our times of suffering, during our times of persecution, during the time when people are bringing up accusations against us that we know are not true, during the time in which our boss is trying to work our last nerve intentionally because they want something to come out of us, during our time in which our husbands and our wives are are really getting under our skin, how do we suffer? See, Jesus is not the only one who has been called to bear a cross. We read in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, that Jesus said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I believe that there is power in in suffering in a way that causes people to see that we are suffering with a, a pure heart and not suffering out of bitterness or anger. This centurion was one because he saw Jesus keep pure during trial. I believe that we have some crosses to bear. I believe that we have some family members that work our last nerve event after event. (laughs) I believe we have some people who know exactly where to hit us and how to hit us to get us to say, ouch. But I believe that that God, that the gospel calls us to suffer daily in a way that does not have people look at us and doubt our Christianity, but has people look at us and admire our Christianity. There is always a temptation (laughs) to respond the wrong way. And we always will feel that temptation because of the nature by which we are born and the flesh that we, that we have in the flesh and the spirit is, is always battling. The flesh did not move out. The flesh moved over. But the Bible assures us these words. Paul says that there is no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful when you are tempted and when we are pressed, when we are being mocked and persecuted, may we remember that God is faithful and that this temptation is not too big for us. For he will not allow you to suffer or to be attempted above what you are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape that you may bear it. The glorious thing is, as Christians, that when we suffer, If we do fall or fail in the temptation, the miraculous thing is, is that God is willing to forgive us. (laughs) 
that we serve a Savior that knows our weaknesses, as the writer of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Instead, we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. We serve a Savior that sympathizes with us. We serve a Savior that is our high priest. We serve a Savior that knows what it's like to be human and knows what it's like to have temptation coming Adam. And we serve a savior who inspired John to write in 1 John 1 and 9 that if we confess our sins that he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Jesus suffered and he did it and went through it with purity. The second thing that we see in this text is that Jesus Loved while suffering. That Jesus loved while suffering. This centurion saw Jesus' purity. He saw that he was not sinning. He saw that Jesus was not compromising, that his walk was not changing. And then he saw that even while he was suffering, that Jesus was loving people. He's loving people. We can see this in other accounts, such as John chapter 19, verse 20. 6 through 27, when the writer of John records that Jesus, while he was on the cross, said these words. Verse 26 says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. This centurion and the rest of the people who were on the cross saw Jesus take the time while suffering the worst type of death. While suffering in the heat of the day, he saw him take the time to love other people. How could that not change someone's perspective? How selfless was this of our Savior that as he suffered, as he had nails through him, as his back was against a a rugged piece of wood, as his feet was nailed to a tree, as thorns were in his eye and blood was in his bra, that he took the time to look at the disciple he loved, John, and he said, John, take care of my mother. Take care of him. What? Did that do to that centurion soul? What example must that have set for him? And what encouragement is found here from us as Jesus displayed exactly what it means to love your neighbor as yourself? Hmm. Jesus uh, took a step out of his mind Step out of his situation, step out of his circumstance, and step into the circumstance of his mother. His mother, husband Joseph, probably died when Jesus was a teenager. She's a single mother, she's lonely. She's seeing her perfect son be crucified. She's thinking, How in the world am I going to make it? How in the world am I going to provide? Where in the world am I going to live? 
And Jesus stepped out of his situation and into hers and said, John, take care of her. And mother, behold your new son. This should encourage us in our lives to remind ourselves that Jesus cares about us. I don't care what you're going through. I don't care how alone you feel. Jesus cares deeply for you. And as his child, as his relative, he is more concerned about you than you could ever imagine. Single mothers who are struggling, single fathers who are are struggling, always remember that Jesus cares and that he is and will provide. He will provide. Food's low. He will provide. Paycheck does not come for another week. He will provide. Children seem to be going astray and and being left to hang. He will provide. He may not provide in the way that we expect, but he will say, behold. That's that's the type of Savior we serve. (laughs) We serve a Savior that is selfless, a Savior that deserves all honor, glory, and praise, a Savior that needs none of us, but yet a Savior who was willing to put himself in our shoes in order to deliver us from our state and our situation. I love reading stories about self-sacrifice and about how people go above and beyond to save other people even though they know that themselves, that they are putting themselves in harm's way. A couple of weeks ago, I read a story about Brian Wood, who is 33 years of age. And the Bible, of the Bible, the, the story read that he was driving with his wife and they were driving a 2004 Suburban And as they were driving down uh, the street, that a Chevy came, a big uh, uh, SUV came full speed at him. And that when he saw it coming full speed at him, he had to make a decision on how he was going to turn the car. And his wife reported that he looked at her and then he took the wheel and instead of trying to save himself or save them all, he decided to turn a car in such a way where the truck only could hit him and hurt him. The wife was pregnant and she's due in November. And as she was telling the reporters this story, she could not believe that he was that selfless, that he was willing to allow himself to be harmed. And he most assuredly would have known at the speed she said that the car was coming, that it would have been, been tragic. But she said that he chose to save her. And to save her child. I think about Jesus on the cross. I think about the most awesome display of love. I think about how Christ swerved. And how he allowed his father's wrath to hit us instead of him. I think about how his love was, was being poured out at that moment. At the the worst point of his life, how he still was selfless. 
I think about how when he was on the cross, how he still had salvation for the criminals next to him in mind. I think about how he was put in between two thieves, two people who had spent their lives and wasted their entire lives hurting other people and taking from other people. And I think about even how he hung in the heat of the day and how he took the time to minister to one. As the one was mocking, the other was seeking salvation. And he said, save a spot for me in your kingdom. And I think about how how Jesus, how he was not just bearing physical pain at that time. But he was bearing the most emotional and spiritual pain that a person has ever had to bear. Because he who knew no sin at that moment was bearing the sin of the world. And not just the sin of the world at that present time, but the sin of the world for all time. He was bearing the sin of that centurion soldier. He was bearing the sin of those who came before him. He was bearing the sin of those who would come after him and put their faith and trust in him. And he was bearing your sin and my sin. A person who for all eternity knew not what it felt like to have sin, allowed the sin of the world to be upon him, not within him. And I just think about how even though he was going through all of those emotions and how at that time he was separated from the father's love and experiencing the father's wrath being poured out of him full speed, how he still took the time to forgive someone. He looked at the other man on the cross and said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And I think about how he looked out at the crowd and how that centurion soldier must have felt as he's watching all these things uncover in front of his eye. And all of a sudden he hears Jesus cry out, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. They're clueless. Forgive them. And then I think about how the father granted that request in Acts chapter 2 as Peter is preaching. And he's preaching to the same Jews that yelled, crucify him. And Peter said, the one whom you crucified. And the Bible says that as a result of Peter's preaching and as a result of of Jesus' prayer, that 3,000 souls came to be saved. Oh, what love the Savior loves us with. And when you're in your dark place, when you're in your dark corner, when you feel like the world is crumbling before you and that God does not understand or care, would you please remember this centurion's perspective as he watched divine love on display? Christ took the hit. That we deserve. Woman. Whose husband died. The report said that. The driver of the vehicle. In his car had cocaine. Heroin. Full of drugs. He himself was high. And had a pistol. He was reckless. He took her husband. And I pray that God would work in her heart in such a way that she would see Christ 
and what he did for her. How we were all drugged up on ourselves. <laughs> How we were all once drugged up on trying to chase success without seeking the one who gives true success. How we were all drugged up on, on trying to find the maximum experience of, of the flesh and, and, and trying to pour our love into someone who did not know how to love us and how we were harming and hurting ourselves. I, I pray that we would remember that we were the ones that was driving that truck and that we really deserve death. But Christ not only... Not only saved others, but he saved us. As that centurion watched, he saw blood splattered on a cross. As that centurion watched, he saw blood come from the Savior's bra. As that centurion Watched when Jesus gave up the ghost, he saw a spear go in that centurion side and he saw water and blood come out. And why is that so important? The reason why that's so important is because that blood is what was going to save that centurion. That blood was the only hope for that centurion. That blood was the only hope for us. Leviticus 17, 11, God wrote this to Moses as he was telling the children of Israel not to eat blood. And he was forbidding them for eating blood. He told them the reason, he says, for the life of flesh is in the blood. The life of flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by life. You hear that? He says, don't eat the blood of animals because the very life of an animal is found in their blood. And he says, you can't eat it because through that blood you will be atoned. What does atone mean? It means to be reconciled. It means to have a, a, a reunion. Through that blood you will be reconciled with God. So God in the Old Testament set up a way in which we can be reconciled because when a person sins, they deserve death. God promised that to Adam and Eve. If you eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will die. That's divine justice. Wherever there is sin, there must be death. But God gave Adam and he gave Eve grace and he gives us grace. And he says the way that now that you are going to have to be reconciled, the way in which you will receive mercy from me is if you sacrifice your animals. Throughout the Old Testament, we see them sacrificing animals, taking their, their animals the best that they had, and they would take it uh, to the tabernacle, and they would enter into the gate, and they would set their animal on the brazen altar, and, 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 and a priest would look at them, and he would take the, the offering forth from their hands and put it on a brazen altar, altar, and he would give them a knife, and they would put their hands on the sacrifice, which was symbolic of them saying, this deserve, I deserve this death. Their only hope was in the blood of that animal. Because there was a rule with God, a life for a life. He took it 
They took the knife. The priests didn't kill the animals. They took the knife and they killed their own sacrifice. They killed the very best of their flock because God would only take the very best blood. And the priests would take it from there. Look what God has done. This centurion is witnessing God fulfill the law and the prophets. This centurion is witnessing God atone for the sins of his people. This centurion is witnessing God saying, no longer will you have to bring a sacrifice. I'll provide the sacrifice. This centurion is, is witnessing an innocent man, but yet who was, who was yet fully divine, put himself on the cross. And, and why did it have to be Jesus? It had to be Jesus because Jesus is the only one who had blood pure enough. Pure enough to wash away all of our sins. Jesus was the only one who had blood pure enough to wash away all our sins. And yet he was the only one that could be human and do it. So you had God, Jesus, taking upon our sins by allowing his body to bleed as the perfect sacrifice. Because he is the only one who could Receive the wrath of God (laughs) and live and tell about it. The very wrath of God was poured out on him in order that we can be reconciled. He did that out of love. Jesus did it. And our only hope is that blood. Our only hope is looking to that sacrifice in faith daily. And realizing that that sacrifice is what saves us. Not our works. Not our education. Not our ethnicity. Not our ability to to love other people primarily. But it is Through his blood. His blood is the blood that heals. His blood is the blood that delivers. His blood is the blood that reconciles. His blood is the blood that appeased the father's wrath. His blood is the blood that reconnects. His blood is the blood that gives us hope. His blood is the blood that gives us purpose. That gives us freedom. That gives us revelation. That allows us to receive his spirit. His blood. And I'm wondering today is have you looked to the sacrifice of Christ as your means to be reconciled with God? Have you looked to the blood of Christ? Have you have have you looked to his sacrifice and have you asked God to allow that blood to wash away your sins? Are you living in light of that blood or are you living in light of your works? That's why Jesus is the only way. Because Jesus' blood is the only blood that could heal. We also see in this text that this centurion would have been won over by Jesus' control. 
while suffering. The fact that Jesus was in control while he suffered. We see in this text that Jesus died a unique death on the cross. Most people who died on the cross would suffer and and these soldiers would watch them slowly suffer to their death and and breathe their last without any control over their death. But we read in the scripture that Jesus was in control. The Bible says that just before he died, he yelled out to Telestai, it is finished he was in control of when he died he was in control of how he died he said it is finished this was a a popular term that was used when people would pay off their taxes they would then get written on the papyrus on the on the tax receipt over it to tell us that was something that everybody knew to tell us which means that this has been paid in full jesus while he was on the cross yelled out to tell us our debt is paid in full it's finished it's done What God set in motion in Genesis chapter 3 when he said that he, speaking of Jesus, will bruise the serpent's head to tell us that it's finished. Satan's head has been stumped on. What the law and what the prophets prophesied, it is finished. It is done. Isaiah said he was despised and rejected. It's finished. He said he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with gift, with grief. It is done. It's finished. Right. He said that he lived unesteemed. It's, it's finished. He said that he would carry our sorrows. It's, it's finished. He said that he was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities and the chastisement that brought us peace. He said it is finished. I've done it. What God set in motion before the foundation of the world as plan A, not as plan B, that a lamb was slain. It is finished. Except for 30 some odd years, I walked this earth purely and I allowed people who I created to to bruise me and to hurt me and to talk about me. He said, it is finished, Father. I have done your will. I have fulfilled our plan. It's done. Oh, may we hear those words daily in our spirits when we feel like we have things going on that that are so big and so proportionate that we don't know how to handle the way. May we remind ourselves that our biggest debt was paid. It's finished. May we remind ourselves daily as we sin and repent and sin and repent and as we feel like condemning ourselves and telling ourselves that we're worthless, may we remind ourselves that Christ has already paid for that sin. It is finished. May we remind ourselves that Satan tries to tempt us with despair. But our debts have been paid. Remember in college, the best party I attended was the party that I was the only person at. I hated math. I just couldn't understand why they had to give me an X with a two over it and tell me to find the unknown number. 
drove my professors crazy because I want to know why behind stuff. If you're going to have me work on one problem for 20 minutes, you need to tell me why. And I remember the semester coming to a close. And I remember telling all my friends this is the last math class that I'm ever required to take. And I remember after my final planning the rest of the day, I said, after I take that test, I'm going to run home, take a nap, and I'm going to treat myself to my favorite meals and restaurants for the rest of the day. And I'm going to come home, light candles, play some smooth jazz, and just dance around my apartment for the rest of the night. I didn't want anybody to be invited to my, pro to my party, only me, because it was finished. <laughs> Christians, we have an opportunity to celebrate every day. We have an opportunity to throw a party by ourselves every day because it is finished. The last thing we see in this text that would have won the centurion over is we see the earth's reaction to Jesus' sacrifice. We see how the earth reacted. We see how nature responded when Christ gave his life. We read these words starting at verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saint who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. The earth reacted when Christ yielded up the ghosts. When he cried to the Father, Father, here is my spirit. When he told the Father that he was done and when God allowed him to experience temporary death, we see that the earth revolted. How this soldier must have been affected to hear Christ, to hear Christ say that he was done, and to hear Christ on his own terms hang his own head. What manner of man is this that, that looks to the heaven and says, I'm done and dies? But oh, what manner of man says that and at the moment that he says that causes the earth to quake. In Palestine, they, were, they, they knew what earthquakes were like. In Israel, they knew what earthquakes were like. They, they were often experiencing earthquakes, but not of this kind. Not, not when a man just gets done from, from speaking that he's done. The Bible says that darkness came over the, the whole city. The S-U-N refused to shine because the S-O-N was shining. And the Bible says that the earth quaked in, in such a way that the tombs were open and that the saints of old miraculously began to walk the streets. What was God doing here? God was letting them know. He was pointing back to the days of Moses at Mount Sinai. As he spoke through the law and gave the law and as the earth trembled and as the law was presented, God was telling people that it is done. The law has been fulfilled today in Christ. 
And the Bible says that, that as that happened, as the earth quaked and, and as the sun refused to shine, the Bible says that there was a tear. And the tear came from the temple. The tear came from their place of worship as a veil that was in the, the temple, the, the veil that separated the sanctus sanctorum or the holies of holies, the place where only the priests were allowed to go once a year, once a year on the day of atonement. This 15 foot veil, this 15 wide veil, foot wide veil ripped in half. Ripped in half. Signifying that we have complete access to the presence of God. That we no longer have to go through the outer gates of a tabernacle of a temple. That we no longer have to put our sacrifice on a brazen altar. That we no longer have to go into the back room. And, and we no longer needed the lampstands. And, and we no longer needed the, the mercy seat. Because the presence of God is now indwelling. The very power that was experienced by the priest on the day of atonement is the power that we can experience every morning. If we wake up with our minds stayed on Jesus and this centurion is at the foot of the cross and he sees the earth rebel and he yells out two things. The first thing he yells out is truly this was the son of God. And then we read in John that he yells out that truly this was an innocent man. And that's what Jesus had been trying to tell him the whole time. That I am an innocent man. That the reason why I chose to come down the lineage of 42 generations. The reason why I allowed myself to be succumbed to, to Mary's womb. The reason why I walked the streets of Jerusalem for 30 years. The reason why I healed your parents. And and healed your daughters the reason why I raised the leopard the reason why I was called to this earth was in order that you may have a chance to cry out that truly this is the son of God the reason why I put myself through this was for your sins in order that you would see that truly a God man had visited us but you know the story does not end there in Matthew chapter 28, the Bible talks about how, how Jesus was resurrected on the third day. And the Bible says that the governor called the soldiers to him. And he says, listen, soldiers, we've got a problem. That radical that we killed. That nut that we killed, that one who was constantly blaspheming, somehow his body has disappeared. And he took a little money and he paid the soldiers off and said, go tell everybody that the disciples stole the body. But I bet you that out of those soldiers, that centurion was nowhere to be found. I bet you that out of those soldiers, that centurion did not accept that money because he saw some stuff that messed him up. And I'm so glad that God has allowed me and you to experience some stuff that has messed us up. Satan, we don't want your money. We don't want your promotion. Sweetheart, I don't want your body. I don't need that job to find my identity. I have found my identity at the foot of the cross. I found my identity when Jesus made atonement for me. I found my identity when I heard my grandmother sing, Oh, the blood 
of Jesus that washes all the blood of Jesus. And I know somebody in here knows that the reason that they're alive, the reason that they've got hope, the reason that they've got joy is because of the blood. But not just because of the blood, but because Jesus got up on the third day. He says, my work isn't finished yet. I told you that no man takes my life, but I lay my life down. You can't kill me. You can't murder me. I created you. I can mess you up in a second, but I was willing to allow you to think that you had me because I had something that you didn't know that you needed. I'm so glad that Jesus conquered the grave. What else can he do for you? If he gave his life for you, if he conquered the grave for you, Paul said, what else will he do for you? There's nothing that Jesus can't do. If you've got a problem, I know the solution. And his name is Jesus. J-E-S-U-S. You've got some stress? Jesus. You've got some worries? Jesus. You're lost? Jesus. You need some help? Jesus. 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 My way out of nowhere. Jesus. My liaison. Jesus. My peacemaker. Jesus. My all in all. Jesus. My mind regulator. Jesus. My lawyer. Jesus. My doctor. Jesus. My redeemer. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, walk and wash away my sins. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that blood that makes me white as snow. Yeah, baby, we've got a king on our side. Yeah, baby, we've got a redeemer on our side. Yeah. And he chose to call you friend. Ain't that something? Not only is he my savior, but he's my friend.